0: One of the things which is so striking about Christian doctrine is that whilst there are so many different layers and categories of truth which make up the Christian faith, the London Baptist Confession, for example, has 32 chapters and many paragraphs within each one. Whilst the truths uncovered by Paul in this letter to the Romans Can stretch our minds to the uttermost limit. Despite all of that, at its heart, the gospel is a very simple message. Even a child can understand it, even the least educated adult can understand it. You don't have to be able to comprehend all of the mechanics of the Christian doctrine in order to become a Christian. Indeed, many people know only the very basics when they're first saved. You should, of course, want to dig deeper once you're saved. And God, by his Spirit, provides you with both a hunger and an an enabling so that you can dig down deeper into the Scriptures and into these wonderful truths. But you don't need to have been awarded a PhD in theology in order to become a Christian. It's a very simple message, really. Paul's reminded us at verses six and seven that there's no grand accumulation of works required. You're not called to scale impossible heights or to plumb unsurvivable depths. Attaining to the righteousness which God requires is not something which lies away on the distant horizon and who knows who could ever hope To make that journey or how? No, actually, it's very near, which is where we concluded last week. The message of Christ is preached, it's as close as that. And you remember how Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 actually sums up the essential truths of the gospel in just 27 words that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Therein lies those basic nuggets of truth that people need to know about in order that they might put their trust in Christ and be saved. Now, of course, those truths can be dug into deeply and expounded many times over but that is it the question is do you believe it the question is have you received these truths for yourself about Christ by faith and if you do and if you have it will be upon your lips and it will be in your heart we're going to be considering confessing lips and a believing heart. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul brings brings us back to the simplicity of it all. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes to righteousness. With the mouth Confession is made to salvation. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord, Jesus, the Christian declares, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is referred to as Lord many more times than he is actually referred to explicitly in the Bible as saviour. It's the lordship of Christ, which is mentioned over and over and over again, which is not to minimise his saving work, but rather emphasises that actually it's his lordship which enables him to be your saviour. You need someone who is lord to save you, He is Lord. Remember how uh, with the healing of that paralysed man, which we considered a few weeks ago, Jesus said that he did it so that they may know that he has the power and authority to forgive sins. Who can save but God alone? He is Lord. For the Christian, this is the real point of emphasis, that our Saviour is the Lord. Therefore, to believe on Christ and to receive Christ, you have to believe on him and receive him as Lord. Yes, he is your saviour, but he must be your Lord. In the days of the early church, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, was sometimes used by Christians as a greeting to one another. When they first met one another, that's the first thing they'd say, Jesus is Lord. In some ways, it's, it's a most basic confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. For them back then, it was a very significant thing that they did that. And for two reasons that we can mention particularly. They lived in an age when the dominant cultures in their day, the Greeks and the Romans, they worshipped a multiplicity of gods, dozens of them. They had major gods and they had minor gods. They had ancient gods and they had more recent gods. Typically, each god would have one particular domain or area over which they supposedly ruled. And so, according to your need or your circumstance, you would go to the shrine of the most relevant God, the most appropriate God. You would present your gift and your offering there in the hope that that particular God would look favourably upon you for this particular need, and that that God would act in your favour and for your benefit. And so when Paul was walking around Mars Hill In Athens, he was looking at shrine after shrine after shrine, all these different gods where worship would take place. And then, you'll remember, found one shrine dedicated to the unknown god, just in case there was another one that they weren't aware of. Well, it wouldn't do to be offending them, would it? So, well, let's try and cover all of our bases. And so at that shrine, Paul stopped and he declared to them the one true God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus, the only Lord you need, and in fact, the only Lord that there is. This one Lord who is over all things. And that would have been quite a statement to people in in that time. One God? Who can do all of these things that all of these gods combined can do? So they thought there is one God who can do all of that? Yes, says Paul, and more. So for for Christians to declare Jesus alone is Lord, this was a big deal and more so within the Roman culture and empire, because within the Roman Empire, the lordship of Christ was even more poignant, because as Paul writes this letter, for the last 80 years or so, since the time of Caesar Augustus, every emperor of Rome has been considered to be a deity, and every good Roman citizen was expected to declare, Caesar is lord. Well, there can only be one who is Lord. And for Christians, that can only be Christ. So, sorry, Mr. Caesar, but Lord, you are not. And that won't be coming off my lips, no matter what that may mean for me. Well, confessing Jesus as Lord can still be very costly for many people today. As we heard from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, even within family households, naming Jesus as Lord can be very costly indeed. And we remember those words of Jesus in Matthew 10, and we considered them again this morning. Whoever confesses me before men... And here, Paul is saying, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. The Christian confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus. This is an integral part of being a Christian. But of course, it runs much deeper than simply being a catchy slogan. It's much more than that. It's much more than having having the words written on the badge on on your lapel or on a sticker on the back of your car. This is is a confession which carries with it a life-changing understanding that Jesus is Lord. The ramifications of Jesus being Lord need to sink deep into the soul of the Christian believer because the response that that must demand of you surely is evident. If Jesus is Lord, then, well, I can but kneel before him and submit myself to him. I can do no less. He's your Lord. You must live as if he is. This confession brings with it a changed life. It has to. The words of your mouth in confessing him are a necessary public testimony of your relationship to Christ and of your salvation, which then needs to be reflected in your life. Look at the second half of verse 10. With the mouth, confession is made. Unto salvation. Now, what is the confession? The confession is Jesus is Lord, and that confession is made unto salvation. You cannot have Christ only as your Savior. And if you think that that is all that Jesus is, and that is all that Jesus needs to be, just your Savior, well, you have a Jesus of your own invention, not the Jesus of the Bible. Because this confession of the Lordship of Christ is the confession that's made to salvation. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood and preached, and he declared Jesus to be both Lord and Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One. And Lord came first in Peter's vocabulary. He is the Lord. He is God, this One who is Jesus The one who saves God's people from their sins is Lord. And so confessing Jesus as Lord is an integral part of turning to him as your saviour. Paul says this is the word of faith which we preach. He says that at the end of verse 8. We looked at that last week. This is the truth of the gospel which we call men and women to receive in believing faith. So the question has to be faced, is Jesus your Lord? Not just do you think that he is Lord, not simply are you willing to accept that there is one who is the Lord and his name is Jesus. No, is he your Lord? Are you living under his lordship. That's the issue that's put before us in these verses. Is your confession of his lordship an unavoidable reality in your life? Uh, And if this is the case, this, this can't be something that remains hidden, can it? This can't be a secret. This can't be something which permits your life to trundle on unchanged. It ought not to be something about which you remain silent. He's to be confessed as Lord. But what if it is just words? What if it is just words? Because it could be, couldn't it? Jesus said, there will be lots of people who address me as Lord, but they are complete strangers to me. Hmm. And Paul makes it clear that there's actually, there's, a, there's another governing reality in the life of the Christian and we see that in the second half of verse 9 and into the opening of verse 10. It's not just confessing Jesus as Lord. That, that is a necessary part. But the coin has another side. And on the other side of the coin it says this. If you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes unto righteousness. Righteousness. And so the second point is this. These confessing lips come from a believing heart. These confessing lips come from a believing heart. And if the confession doesn't come from a believing heart, it's just words. So for the Christian, within the depth of your soul, you are convinced about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are convinced about your need of Him. And for this to be true, a seemingly impossible transformation has to take place because what does the Bible teach us about our heart in its natural condition? Well, Jeremiah says these famous words in chapter 17, the heart... Is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What did Jesus say about the heart, the unsaved heart, the unregenerate heart? Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, they defile a man. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. All sin comes from the heart. Our sinful hearts are the epicentre and the source of all our sinfulness. Our sins are fed and driven by our sinful heart and out it flows. And Paul is teaching us here that this confession of which he's been speaking is rooted in and flows out of a changed heart. The heart is the the seat of all of your inner thoughts and convictions. The heart is the place within you where you become convinced that this is the truth, The heart in the Bible isn't merely the place for feelings and emotions. It still is the thinking you as well. This in the heart is where true believing takes place. Understanding, yes, is of the mind, but this confirmed belief with full conviction is of the heart. And that's what's being spoken about here. And it, that's what leads you to trust. That's what, that what, that's what leads you to commitment. The heart is where loyalty is found or lost. The heart is where you become fully persuaded. It's where the act of the will and your volition comes from. And when a sinner comes under the sound of of the Gospel, the Holy Spirit produces this necessary change of heart and of our minds as well in order that we can comprehend and understand the truth. And belief in the truth takes place within the life of the Christian. You see and you understand the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's a fact that you cannot ignore any longer. Because Christ's resurrection is the vindication of his completed work of atonement for your sin. And you see and you know now that's what you need more than anything else. More than anything that this world has to offer you. You need this Jesus and his salvation. This this Jesus is God's saviour who died for my sins. Who's conquered death and Satan in rising again. By this Jesus, I may be declared righteous in God's eyes. God can declare me justified and sanctified, as Paul has already taught us early in his letter. This is God's free gift of grace for me. In the courtroom of heaven, God brings down his gavel and declares justified and righteous those who from the heart are believing in his Son and who look to Christ alone for salvation. And just like those disciples on the Emmaus Road, your heart burns within you with these truths and you are saved. And so now you can do no less and you can do no other than to confess the Lord Jesus because he is everything for you now. We were reminded last Wednesday of that occasion when uh, Lydia was down at the riverside in Philippi and the Lord opened her heart and that was it then. That was it then. It was done, Uh, a believing heart in Lydia And what followed? Well, she was confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as her saviour. That's what Paul is talking about in these brief sentences. And when these realities truly dawn upon you, there will only ever be one response. And it's this, that you will call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You'll call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Because you can do no other because of the saving work of grace that God is doing within you. Do you know anything of this? Are you praying this for those who you know are without Christ? And this is verses 11 to 13 in this little section that we're considering. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You'll never regret the day you trusted in Christ. And he will never abandon you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never disappoint you. He'll never let you down. Because whoever believes on him will be saved. And the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. And Paul says, you shall be saved, shall be saved. And the you shall be saved bit is in the in the future tense. And so it seems that Paul is thinking particularly of the Christians' total acquittal at the last judgment. Now, it's true that the moment you become a Christian, you can say quite legitimately, I have been saved, because you have been. There's also a wonderful day yet to look forward to when you shall be saved, because there will be that day of uh, judgment, but for the Christian, it will be a day of acquittal if you're in Christ. You shall be saved on that day in a very particular way. But you have it now. It, it's the same in John 3, 16, isn't it? That most famous of, famous of verses, you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's yours to claim right now as a Christian believer. But you'll, you'll go into it and experience it, 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 experience it in a whole new realm and way. On that day when Christ returns, takes you to be with himself, you'll experience it in a whole new way. The day that you die, if you're a Christian, when you immediately go to be with Christ. And it will open up to you a whole new experience of what it means to be saved. That we can only barely begin to grasp and understand in this life. The wrath revealed from heaven against sinners, which Paul talks about in the opening chapter of Romans. You've been saved from that in Christ. If you know for yourself the realities of these verses in the Scripture... And you see how verses 10 to 13, they all begin with the word for. Paul is saying that these things are cast iron guaranteed and here are the reasons why. For, for, for. It's because of this truth and this truth and this truth and this truth. All of this is already being promised by God. God doesn't play games with us on these these issues. This is far too serious. And the Father, it's cost him the suffering and death of his own Son that you might have this and that you might know this. So when you believe in Christ in the way that we're we're describing this evening, you will be saved because this is what God produces in the heart of those he saves. And he only produces this in the hearts of those he's saving. the one in whom you believe, the one in whom you put your trust, he has accomplished and secured this salvation for you. So whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. So do you have this hope and this comfort and this peace and this assurance which removes the fear of death? You might not be looking Forward too much to the process of dying but death itself holds no fear because of these great truths the judgment to come holds no fear because of these great truths you shall be saved you can know it and it will be so Thelma's funeral's coming up on Friday morning there'll be tears there'll be grief there'll be sorrow The parting from loved ones hurts. But I can tell you this there'll also be rejoicing. There'll also be thanksgiving. There'll also be praises. There'll also be gladness. Why? Because Thelma called on the name of the Lord and was saved. And she was saved. And she is saved. And she shall be saved. And if you believe on Christ and call upon him, this will be yours in Christ as well. If you've never yet done that, I would just urge you to consider the claims of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel message, the way it's put before you here. To call upon Christ the Lord That he will be your savior. There is just one gospel. There is just one savior. There is just one method of salvation. Verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no this salvation for you and this salvation for you. It's exactly the same. The same Lord, over overall, is rich to all who call upon Him. Have you called upon Him? And if you never have, why would you not do that right now, even where you're sitting right now? Just call upon Him to be saved. Jesus is Lord. And is overall, including this, and therefore nothing can ever change it, nothing will ever remove it. And He's rich in mercy and grace, and He bids you come. There are no Christians who are more saved than other Christians. The simplest. Confession of faith in Christ completely saves. The confession of a child completely saves. The confession of a 90-year-old on their deathbed completely saves. This salvation which God has provided through his Son It works in exactly the same way and it accomplishes exactly the same thing for all who trust in Christ. This is why Paul had such confidence and zeal in preaching the gospel. It's why you and I should. This is why you need to obey the command of the gospel to repent if you never have before. The sinner who calls on the name of the Lord, who confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believes in their heart, this is the Jesus who died and rose again for me. If you do that, you'll be saved. Oh, to have confessing lips from a believing heart. Do you? How are your heart and your lips this evening? Isn't it wonderful that we can boil it down to a question as simple as that? How are your heart and your lips this evening? What a saviour, and he is Lord.